middle of the country, but not middle of the road opinions. It's the podcast dedicated to sports in the air capital of the world. I'm going to Wichita. Wichita, Kansas and beyond. With Tommy Castor and Weston Mills, this is Keeper of the Games. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for listening to Keeper of the Games. We are the wildly underqualified yet mildly entertaining podcast about sports in the air capital of Wichita, Kansas and beyond. Along with Weston Mills, I'm Tommy Castor and Weston, it's another milestone episode here today. We have made it to episode number 30 wow. on Keeper of the Games, hitting that 3-0 mark here on this brand new show. It seems like yesterday we were just kind of starting this podcast and here we are 30 episodes in. How's everything going, man? Man, it's going good. It, it's hard to think that it took us about uh, 30 episodes worth of content before we started to get to talk about live sports. I mean, I guess we're yeah. a couple couple weeks into it now, but it feels like we're really just kind of getting, you know, getting our grasps on uh, what it's like uh, breaking this down as live sports are actually happening. It's nice. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, we're getting to a point now where it's kind of crunch time for a lot of these sports to decide what's going to happen. And, you know, are they going to restart their seasons? Are they going to have different things in place? And we've got some more details, especially as it relates to prep sports to talk about on this episode of Keeper of the Games. We'll get to that in just a little while here uh, for Wichita uh, and, and the high schools in, in the in the city league. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Also news about the Royals, the Chiefs and a whole lot more coming up here on Keeper of the the games. Don't forget to hit subscribe. So whenever we have a new episode, you'll get a notification. You can listen to us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We're on platforms like iTunes and Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, PocketCast, and many others. You can also go to our website, cogpod.weebly.com, and you can watch full episodes there. By the way, you can also watch full episodes on YouTube and on Facebook by searching for Keeper of the Games. And of course, you can always follow us on Twitter and Instagram at cog pod at kog pod so with that let's get right into this new edition of keeper of the games episode number 30 we're going to start with a a topic that we've started with the last few weeks and that's recapping the kansas city royals i feel like west in the first you know, kind of recap we had when the season started, we were talking about how bad the Royals were. Then we had a week where we were talking about how good they were playing. Now it's kind of up and down. I mean, I kind of feel like the Royals have sort of stabilized a little bit where, you know, they're playing okay baseball for the most part. Some nights are better than the others. You know, right now the Royals have a record of 10 and 14. Now we're recording this podcast in the middle of game two of the doubleheader against the Cincinnati Reds. At the time of this recording, the Royals were losing to the Reds. So unless that changes, the Royals could very easily be 10 and 15 by the time this episode drops. What, what, what are your thoughts, Weston, of the last seven days of Royals baseball? I mean, I know we talked about them quite a bit last week. Have things changed for you at all? Yeah, not, not a whole lot. We, I, I think we, I know I said it and I think you kind of said it as well. And maybe even Blake mentioned it on, on some of his, his position kind of when we're talking about the Royals, but inconsistency that's that's the name of the game right now right and and i think you're gonna expect that with a lot of young players who have a lot of talent you know and they're gonna play well at times and then times they're gonna play like rookies or first year or second year guys and not just you know just find themselves lost at the plate or not be able to find the strike zone or you know leave breaking balls up in the zone dancing around and they get smashed out of the yard you saw uh, if if folks saw Nelson Cruz absolutely annihilate a couple baseballs uh, the other night, but that I think it's a lot of what we're expecting. I do think um, we're winning at a little bit higher clip. I think the pitching has been better than what I thought it would be. And with that being said, I mean there's certainly there no doesn't need to be a conversation about this season being over yet. I mean. Like I said, I mean, 10 and 14, obviously, that's a record that's that's playable, but they've shown they have the talent to go on stretches and maybe put something together that, that might be able to sneak in somewhere. Yeah, you know, I think that we talked quite a bit, even before the beginning of the season, about how the Achilles heel for the Royals more than likely was going to end up being pitching, you know, starting pitching especially. And, you know, while I agree with you that, you know, overall the Royals have been inconsistent, I, I do agree that the pitching staff has looked better than I think what everybody thought they were going to. They're not great. They're not an ace pitching staff by any stretch of the imagination, but you've got a couple guys that have looked really good and, you know, 
know, I want to start with someone that didn't start the season, you know, active and healthy with the Royals. And that's Brad Keller, who pitched, you know, just a couple hours ago from the time yeah. of this recording and very closely had a almost had a no hitter against the Reds in the seven inning, you know, game one of the doubleheader. Um, pretty impressive from a guy like Brad Keller that, you know, kind of got a slow start into the season for the Royals, was started the season on the injured list. Now he's back and, you know, he's pitching pretty well. Yeah, and, and he's going to be interesting, too, because as we continue to talk about the Royals the rest of the year, it's going to be, okay, what's going on this year? You know, does it look like they have a chance to be competitive and actually, you know, make the playoffs? But we're also going to be continuously talking about, okay, what does the future of this team look like? And Brad Keller is particularly interesting because he's a guy that you don't necessarily pencil in automatically to the, the Royals' future pitching rotation because they have, you know, four or five uh, very exciting arms in the minor leagues and, and actually in the majors as well. Now with Brady Singer and Chris Bubich and, and, you know, we're seeing some other guys kind of move up and down as things are going to go this season. But I don't know that Brad Keller is someone that is necessarily a long-term arm in this rotation, but the way he continues to pitch he's going to be a part of that plan if he continues to play the way he does. So it's been exciting to see what, what he's uh, brought this season so far and the limited ability that we have seen him. There was a little bit of a debate on this on Twitter, and I want to get your thoughts on it. Now, obviously, you know, Brad Keller didn't finish the game uh, with a no hitter, but there was a lot of conversation about, if he did, would that count as an actual no hitter considering it's only a seven inning game this season? What's your take on that? Would you have given Brad Keller an actual no hitter if he had been able to complete it? Oh, no. I mean, I, what the actual record book says, I don't know. I mean, it was a complete game. So do you count it? But I think even if you ask him, he'd say that's not, you know, that's not a true no hitter. I mean, I would like to see what the stat is on how many, how often guys have gone seven innings with a no hitter, which I know is still an incredible feat that, you know, sure. there's no dimin diminishing that, but I bet the numbers are a lot higher that guys that have taken a no hitter into the seventh or the eighth, or maybe even to the ninth and, and blown it. So um, I don't think anybody would have been overly excited for Brad Keller. If he got a seven, seven inning, no hitter. You know, when we can talk about good pitching from guys like Brad Keller and in the same breath, we can talk about some bad pitching. And uh, unfortunately, it looks like for his first start for Kansas City, Matt Harvey has not been super effective. Now, I know it's a very, very small sample <laughs> size. Yeah. I know it's, you know, he's someone that, um, you know, in the past was a dominant pitcher. This is not the same Matt Harvey that we saw five or six years ago in the big leagues. Uh, but at least at the time of this recording, uh, he gave up a couple home runs against the Reds in game two of this doubleheader. Um, I know it's really too early to tell. I'm I'm optimistic. I'm still optimistic that maybe he can come in and be a veteran presence alongside Danny Duffy in that rotation. Um, I don't know. What, where do you stand on on Matt Harvey? I mean, is it optimism where you kind of like, hey, we'll see how he does and it might not work, but, you know, he is. It is what it is. Yeah, I, this one start doesn't change my opinion too much. I think I think the potential here is through the roof. Um, whether it, it actually sees that potential, obviously that's the million dollar question. Um, you know, I, and it's interesting. I read an article today in the athletic and they, it was really all focused on, you know, how he's been out of the game. Basically during quarantine, he was training with uh, a high school buddy of his and actually was using his high school buddy's son to catch for him and trying to stay in shape. And, you know, he, he battled quite a bit just mentally with himself talking about, um, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I working so hard? I don't even hardly have anyone calling me. doesn't seem like anyone's interested. Like, why am I doing this? And then, you know, he, he caught the break with the Royals and, and really it was kind of about reinventing himself, realizing that, you know, it's okay that at, at this point in his career, he's not going to be able to make the same pitches that he wasn't or that he could before. And, and so I, I still think even if he's been working on that and looking good in the satellite camp, it's going to take some game action before he really can find a groove with this new style of pitching where he's not going to come in and throw 98 with backside run and blow guys off the plate. It's just not going to happen anymore. Um, but that being said, I mean, he still gave up three tonight, so that's not, you know, it's not encouraging, but I think you got to give him a little bit more leash before you really make any judgment calls on what he's going to be for the Royals. 
Yeah, you kind of got to let him shake the rust off a little yeah. bit. It's been a long time since he's been in this position. And I'm not sure. I mean, if, if you're a Royals fan and you're like, yeah, we got Matt Harvey and he's going to be the Matt Harvey of old. I think that's a little bit ignorant to think that uh, because, you know, he's he's older now. He's got a lot of rust on him. You know, he's dealt with injuries. Uh, he's bounced around a little bit. You know, he, he kind of you know, went from team to team a couple of years ago. And then, like you just said, was kind of sitting at home and nobody was really calling him. So it's a really low risk, but potentially, I don't want to say high reward, but I would say decent reward for the Royals if he can find his form again. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, especially after this first start, if any of the mechanics, you know, are need to be kind of worked out a little bit. If he's, you know, if he has, you know, some of the same stuff that he had before, you know, maybe at a little bit of a different level. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there is a little bit of optimism that you can still have for a guy like Matt Harvey. And, I, you know, one of the things I want to point out to you, to your point, and I think you put this on Twitter a couple of days ago, that if nothing else, he can be an innings eater for the Royals. Right. You know, he can be a guy that can come in. You know, he's not going to. He's not going to light you up, you know, but he can give you four or five innings before you turn it over to the bullpen. I think that that might be the ceiling uh, for Matt Harvey with his tenure in Kansas City. But we'll have to wait, you know, and see on that. As far as batting goes for the Royals on offense, one of the bright spots over the last week or so has been Whit Merrifield. Whit Merrifield is nine for his last 26. These stats are going into the doubleheader uh, that happened on Wednesday night against the Reds. So those stats don't count. But before that double header started Merrifield was nine for his last 26 that's an average of 346 with one home run and five RBIs and you know that's a, that's a pretty good stretch for Whit Merrifield on the other hand I don't know what your thought what your thoughts are Weston I want to get your opinion on this uh, one of the guys that's been a little bit concerning for me at least over the last week is Jorge Soler uh, who is just not he's not hitting well right now he had a small stretch a couple of weeks back where you know he looked comfortable, but he's kind of in a slump right now. What's your overall takeaway from the last seven days as far as offense is concerned for Kansas City? Well, and this is, I mean, again, I hate to, to continue to, to chant the same chant, but, you know, consistency, of course, is going to be the problem. And it, it, is, it is what we've seen at the plate from a lot of these hitters. What I am encouraged about is that for the most part, uh, Aldoberto Mondesi notwithstanding, the top of the order has been fairly consistent as a unit, if that makes sense. So yes, Soler is, is kind of, you know, been in a little bit of a slump now, but Witt's hitting well. Sal, Salvi's hitting as good as I've ever seen him hit the baseball, which is really encouraging. We're getting Dozier back and he abs- absolutely smashed one the other night. And I think it um, it got, it was hit right at somebody and it, you know, c- kind of a lot of those things you watch and go, okay, well they're hitting the ball half an inch there, half, you know, half an inch here, half an inch there. And, and all of a sudden you're talking about going two for three or three for four instead of one for four, you know? So um, I've been encouraged about the top of the order and really just kind of some of those guys on the bottom, really finding some consistency at the plate is, is going to be a lot, you know, you would have loved to see Gordon, um, Really, and it's not even about the hitting as it is the on-base percentage. He's a guy that typically would would be patient at the plate, would be able to watch the ball, hopefully draw some walks. And I mean, his on-base percentage this year is you know two fifty. You know, and I don't think it's kind of like you said with Harvey. I don't think most Royals fans should have should have the expectation that he is Alex Gordon from the twenty fifteen World Series run. But at the same time, I mean, he's still a veteran presence that you would have liked to see you know, hitting the ball a little bit better. And if nothing else, at least getting on base at a little bit higher clip. Is there a concern? I think, or do you think with Alex Gordon, where at some point, you know, does Mike Matheny have to say, maybe he doesn't start anymore. Maybe he's a guy that comes off the bench. I mean, if, if, if his goal is to get on base and that on base percentage is way down, I mean, do you look at maybe making a change in the starting lineup? You know, I think Mike Matheny is kind of blessed with the, the circumstances of this season and then just the other talent in the outfield that he doesn't have to make this decision about a, you know, all time lifelong going to have a statue at Kauffman stadium player in Alex Gordon. You know, that's a tough decision for a manager to make, to start stop playing someone at least at a regular clip um, like he would have an Alex Gordon, but the two things, right. You know, you've got a short season and you're going to need to be rotating guys through, 
really no matter what anyways, just to keep guys fresh. We're, we're really going to be approaching probably more doubleheaders as you see games kind of get shuffled around, weather, you know, those kind of things. So you're going to see a lot of movement in the outfield. But two, there's really not anyone in the outfield that's just – knocking on the door saying, Hey, I need to be playing more than, than Alex Gordon. I mean, maybe some guys that, you know, if you look at their numbers, they are actually a little bit better than Gordon's, but no one that you're just saying, why is this guy not getting more innings? That's I think part of the problem. Hey, how about Michael Franco or Franco for the Royals? I mean, you know, I know that we talked at the beginning of the season about how more than likely he might just be kind of a one-year rental for Kansas City and probably not a guy that is going to be around for a long time. He's he's produced pretty consistently. I mean, on a in a lineup of inconsistency overall. He's hitting the ball pretty well. I know I watched one of the Twins games over the weekend, and I, I think he had a pretty good game, had a couple hits, and just kind of seems like he's been one of the more consistent hitters for this Royals team here early on. Yeah, no, that's exactly right, and that's the nice thing to have as we continue to talk about inconsistency. I think when when Franco was signed, you're looking at a five- or six-hole hitter really best case. I mean, I think he's got the potential to maybe be more than that, but that's really the expectation I think is this guy is a five or six hole hitter and he has produced very above average of what you want out of your, your five or six hole hitter. You know, he's hitting two two fifty three on base 274 um, slugging at 505. So, and that's kind of really what you're looking at in that five or six hole, what you want out of a corner infield, just bringing a little power to the plate. And he's done it, and he's done it fairly consistently, which I think is is the you know a lot more value when you do have these young guys that are having up and down moments in this lineup. Why don't we take a look back on the last series for the Royals? Now, obviously, they're at the time of this recording, they're in the middle of a doubleheader with the Cincinnati Reds. But prior to that series starting, uh, they played a, a weekend series against the Minnesota Twins. They played the Twins a lot the last two weeks. And I think partly that and partly the fact that there are no fans in the stands. And so a lot is being heard from both benches. And I think both teams were getting kind of tired of each other. There was some drama at the end of the Royals-Twins game on Sunday. Uh, the Royals bench was visibly upset when the game was over with. Vance Wilson, the third base coach, was pointing and yelling and just a lot of drama going on. I'm not sure if you had a chance to watch that particular game or see what was kind of going on. Uh, any takeaways from kind of that? Uh, I mean, their benches didn't clear. There were no punches right. thrown, but just a little bit of drama between those two clubs. Yeah, so I, I missed the actual – I didn't actually get to see what happened. But, I mean, you're you're really – you really nailed the the – uh, the you hammered the nail on the head. My goodness, um, <laughs> with the fact that w- one, this is I mean, this is I don't know. Rivalry is kind of the wrong word, but it's already a division opponent, right? So they're already playing the Twins a lot. Then you move into a season like this where they are feel like that it's you feel like we, all we've played is the Twins, you know, and and then really with all the, all that chatter and noise, it's just getting caught. Uh, you know, it's just going to happen at the end of a long series like that. Or and really, when I say series, it's really first four okay a quick break to play somebody else and then followed by another four you're just going to be tired of those guys that's just how it works well let's hear from the skipper of the twins Rocco Baldelli about his thoughts uh on kind of the drama between those two teams I didn't see anything on our side of the diamond that seemed unusual to me in any way um nothing that you wouldn't see in, in, in any other game. So I'm not sure specifically uh, what they were upset about, but I think also um, it, it did seem like they were upset about something. Uh, all that being said, in baseball, with no fans in the stands and uh, not a lot of, you know, our, our audiovisual people do a fantastic job, but it's, it's not the same, you know, type of noise that you're used to, and it doesn't really drown anything out. So anything that that is said on the field um, on either side, you generally hear it pretty pretty clearly. Um, probably could create a few more issues than normal. But all that being said, uh, I didn't see anything on our end that I would be concerned about one bit. Um, so I, I think I think we're fine to to leave it at that. And if they have uh, you know any kind of uh, issue, they're always fine to address it. 
That's Rocco Baldelli, his thoughts on uh, the chirping between the two teams and basically saying he didn't hear anything that he thought was, you know, out of line uh, between, you know, the two teams and from his ball club. This is Mike Matheny responding to that. Yeah, a little taunting going on. You know, I think what you're seeing is the um, the result of being able to hear everything each bench says. And so um, can't take emotions out of this game either and a little taunting to our side and boys – didn't like it a whole lot. This is a team that obviously uh, doesn't like losing. Um, you have to, to like that type of attitude and that kind of fight even after the game's over. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, you know they've, they've got each other's backs and um, you know just want to try and go about it the right way. You know they're staying engaged in the game, and with that, you know you're going to have you're going to have things said and heard, and uh, you know that's one of the unfortunate things that you try and get some of that that uh, ambient noise to cover that up, but you can't completely. And you know what? We can't we, we can't take the emotion out of it, either side. But it's got to be under control, too. And I think that was a frustration is, you know, the umpires see that stuff. They need to jump on and get it figured out and cancel it before it gets out of hand or else, you know, it'll get out of hand. So, yeah, I mean, I think both, you know, skippers, like you said, Weston, they're kind of agreeing on the point of, you know, there's nobody in the stands so you can hear everything. Now, the difference is, is that Baldelli's saying, I didn't hear anything bad. Matheny saying the twins were taunting his players and the umpires needed to step in and, you know, stop it before it got even worse. And so definitely kind of, a, you know, the, they disagree on on that point of the entire matter. But you got to imagine that, especially at the end of that series with the twins, the Royals were probably pretty frustrated. I mean, just the fact that that, you know, the, they swept the twins last weekend. But the, the outcome of this series wasn't nearly as good for Kansas City. So I would imagine a lot of frustration. And, you know, when you're playing inconsistent baseball, like we've talked about, uh, you know, some of that's going to boil over a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing, too, to think about, you know, with this being such a young Royals team, I think you're just going to have these types of situations with with younger guys. I mean, especially guys, you know, how many guys on this roster are, you know, this is their first year, first time in the bigs. You know, I think. And not to say that this is a a wrong or right mentality, but, you know, probably guys that are wanting to kind of show themselves that, hey, look, I'm not, you know, I'm going to stick up for my teammates. I'm not going to take any shit. And, and that kind of mentality just is what comes hand in hand with with young guys. And then combined with all the other things we just talked about, you know, I don't I think this was bound to happen and and not really a big deal on top of that. You know, I had mentioned that I was concerned about Jorge Soler uh, and his his hitting uh, here, uh, you know, about almost midway through the season. Uh, I was looking for a stat and I couldn't find it originally. I found it now, though, that um, at the end of the Twins series, I don't really know exactly what his stats were for the doubleheader for the Reds, but uh, he struck out three times in that game on Sunday against the Twins. He had eight straight at bats ending in a strikeout in that game. And he started the day tied for second in the majors with 30 strikeouts. That's concerning for a guy like Jorge Soler. You know, he's going to strike out some because he's, he's got that game where it's either he's going to hit a home runner. He's going to strike out. You'd hope that he would, you know, put the bat on the ball a little bit more than what he's done so far. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think it's a problem, you know, for the team really as a whole, uh, the Royals are ninth, uh, have the ninth most strikeouts in the major league. And let's see, I'm looking at, I think they are, they are 26th in walks taken. So that does not lead for a real good success, you know, producing runs and, and really just, I, I think the name of the game getting on base. So, you know, Solaire kind of leading the way there, but it's definitely a problem for the team as a whole. Yeah, for sure. I think the, you know, the name of the game, and we've said it over and over again here while talking about the Royals in the last 20 minutes or so is just inconsistency. If there were some things that, you know, the Royals could kind of stabilize and get back on the right track, they're, they're for sure not out of it by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but you're not going to win in a horse race like this shortened season uh, if you're as inconsistent as the Royals have been. So hopefully they find that consistency for sure in the days and weeks to come. We're going to transition away from the Royals, but we're just going to cross the parking lot and talk about the Kansas City Chiefs. It's been a few weeks, I feel like, since we've talked much about the Chiefs other than contracts here and there, but we are getting closer and closer and closer to the start of the NFL season. We've talked, you know, I've, I've seen stories about, you know, the Chiefs starting training camp and what that's looking like and, you know, things kind of falling into place uh, for the Chiefs this season. And that includes what their plans are for Arrowhead Stadium as far 
as fans in the building for home games this season. So the Chiefs have finalized their plans for reduced capacity at Arrowhead Stadium, a capacity of about 22% uh, for this upcoming season. That means about 17,000 fans for home games. I know that when you think of Arrowhead Stadium, Weston, you think of sold out, you know, a sold out stadium, loud, the energy, the craziness of that building. Uh, you know, things are going to be significantly different this upcoming season for Kansas City. Yeah, it's it's really it's exciting that there's going to be, you know, fans at all, but, you know, obviously disappointing. I mean, there's no doubt that that the chiefs playing at arrowhead stadium is an advantage for them. And, and that's pretty much all, but diminished, even if, even if the chiefs fans continue to be the loudest fan group in the NFL, it's still not going to be enough at, you know, 22% or 20, 22% capacity to be able to really disrupt offenses or really change what's going on. So um, exciting that, th- that they're going to have fans there. It would be just, it would be weird and, a shame to see an empty Arrowhead stadium. So glad to see that people are going to be in there. And I've kind of heard it, uh, you know, a little bit of, of kind of what they're going to do is it's going to be, um, I don't know if this is official yet, but this is kind of what I've been told is that they're going to do a pod system where basically you're allowed, you know, you go and tailgate and with those people, then you need to buy a pod of tickets. Now I haven't heard anything about whether that's, Hey, we're going to sell them in, eight ticket blocks, 12 ticket blocks, 15 ticket blocks. I don't know what that's going to be, but then basically they will space out, you know, socially distance the pods and kind of the thought process being, you know, look, if, if you're going to have 12, you know, 10, 12, 15 people that all get together every Sunday to watch the game, whether they're at their house or Arrowhead, they're still all together in close quarters. So it's going to be okay if you keep those same people within each other and and kind of hope to control your environments that way, which I think is a really neat idea because, you know, especially with a, uh, limited amount of seats available, I, it would be, you know, d- disappointing to go to Arrowhead and then not be able to sit with, you know, a few of the folks that you, that, that you went with or came with. So nice to do it that way. And I think it's a really good idea. If given the opportunity, will you go to Arrowhead Stadium this season? Will, will, or is it kind of a situation where you're like, yeah, this might be a year I just sit out? No, oh, there's no doubt I would go if I have the opportunity. I mean, uh, as we... I don't know if we actually have talked about it on this podcast. I'm expecting a daughter on October 16th. Um, So I say that right now, two months before that date, that I would absolutely be an arrowhead. Ask me on October 16th and that I may have a completely different answer for you. Well, someone who is a huge Chiefs fan and tends to go to a majority of the home games but will not be attending home games this season is the mayor of Kansas City. That's Quentin Lucas. Uh, He had a press conference talking about all of this, and he basically said, you know, look, they're following the guidelines, but he thinks he himself will actually stay home. Here's the mayor talking about those new guidelines for Arrowhead Stadium. This is something that has been vetted through a number of different health officials. Those were the recommendations. Uh, They came to my office as well. A few things that are different perhaps about a Chiefs game versus a night out at a restaurant inside. One, of course, is that you are actually outside. The other is that in many ways the game experience will be dramatically different from what you may remember. If you've been to a Chiefs game or any type of event, you're used to being crowded with people, you're used to going into the same entrance, you're used to perhaps using restrooms at the same time, restaurants, etc. Um, every part of the process will be different. So in many ways, as I'm seeing it, this is not actually a regular Arrowhead Stadium experience. And I think the Chiefs would say that too. I think that's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously it, it, it's to be expected that if you're going to limit the capacity, that just the overall fan experience is going to be different. But I can't imagine like, you know, you're not going to be able to go to the concession stand the same way. You're not going to be able to go to the bathroom the same way. Uh, clearly, you're not going to be able to tailgate the same way. It just seems like for for Chiefs fans and, you know, for that matter, any football fan who is allowed to go, you know, to an NFL game this season, I think you have to have that mentality that you're going to go and you're going to watch the game and the game itself is going to be the same, but your overall experience is going to be vastly different. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> If you had asked me two months ago and just told me these were the kind of things that were going to be in place, you know, I would have been, well, let me back up. Not if you had asked me two months ago. If you had asked me at the end of the Super Bowl season and said next year, you know, this is what tailgating is going to look like, this is what capacity is going to look like because of the, you know, COVID, I would have been up in arms saying this, this is a shame. We can't do this. I'm just to the point right now that I'm so happy that that it looks like we're going to be have the green light for football in general that, you know, I'm 
this is almost just passing me by. I think it's incredibly disappointing and not by any, and I don't mean that from a, from a standpoint of any decisions that were made more just that we are in this situation being in the pandemic and, and with everything going on, that this is how it has to be. Um, but yeah, I can't, I mean, I can't imagine walking into uh, Arrowhead stadium and at 22% capacity, essentially that would be like a, you know, a slow Wednesday night at Kauffman stadium. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Probably, probably what that would be comparable to, I think in, in numbers, a normal Wednesday night at Kauffman, <laughs> yeah. you know, over the last couple of years, maybe uh, my, my final question about this particular aspect with the chiefs plan moving forward. You know, when you look at teams like the chiefs and Arrowhead stadium, you even look at teams like, uh, the Seahawks and the 12th man, you know, I, I saw the Seahawks announced that they're not going to have any fans at all, at least for the first three games of the year. Um, I'm not saying that these teams rely on the fan energy. I'm not saying that it's directly a correlation between the stadium and the fans energy, that home field advantage and wins necessarily. But is there a point where you would think that a limited capacity like Arrowhead Stadium or even an empty stadium, like in the case of the Seahawks, could actually impact the play of the game on the field? You know, for the most part, well, I think I think for sure it takes away any type of home field advantage, uh, at least to the degree of, of it being difficult on opposing teams' offenses, you know, to be able to hear in those kind of things. I just don't think – you know, uh, any type of limited capacity crowds can be able to generate enough noise to disrupt yeah. that really at all. Um, you know, I'll be curious if the NFL, I, I would think at least to the same effect that the MLBs, if, if you have an empty stadium, I would certainly think that they would be allowed to pump in a normal crowd level, but from a competitive standpoint, I, you know, I don't know what kind of regulations is the NFL put on that. I mean, you can't turn up the volume when, when your team's on defense, if it's generated, if you do have fans, can you still pump in, you know, crowd noise to a certain level? And then obviously whatever your fans generate on top of that is fine. You know, I think there's some things really that the NFL may need to, to regulate because I do think, I, I think an empty stadium will be interesting. I, I think if you're, um, if you're on the defensive side, you are always, always listening to what that offense is saying. You're trying to pick up on any little cues that you may have noticed or heard in previous games, because a lot of these teams you're playing twice a year, or you know, in you've you've picked up on film. So it makes it easier for a defense, I would think, to kind of pick up some of those signals, sound cues, checks, those kind of things that a quarterback might be trying to do, offensive line really setting their play, shifting shifting right or left if they're going to slide. I mean, most most offensive lines in the NFL are going banned, but still, the, I mean, those kind of adjustments are made at the line of scrimmage. Um, so a lot of those things need to be factored in. Ultimately, I, I just don't think that the actual fans themselves are going to create much of a difference from stadium to stadium. Yeah, I just wonder if, and, and it's going to be an experiment for sure. I just wonder if, uh, it's going to be hard to tell also if fans that, you know, the lack of fans in the stadiums or no fans at all, if there will be any sort of change on the actual scoreboard itself because of a lack of fans in the stadiums. I don't know. Again, there's probably no way to tell. Um, it's just going to be interesting, I think, to see how that all plays out uh, as the season progresses. So we're going to talk more about the Chiefs and a different topic uh, with Kansas City here. So I woke up on... Thursday morning, and I, I saw an alert on my phone, and it talked about how George Kittle was signed to this huge contract from the 49ers. And my, my first thought was, that's going to bode really well for Travis Kelsey. I had no idea it was going to bode well for Travis Kelsey that exact same day. And that's exactly what happened as Travis Kelsey signed a huge contract, a four-year, $57 million extension that keeps him in Kansas City for the next six seasons. The deal is worth between $14 and $15 million per year uh, in new money average for Travis Kelsey. How are the Chiefs finding this money? I mean, you know, th these guys, Brett Veach has got to be a master with the salary cap. It wasn't that long ago, Weston, on this program, we were talking about how the Chiefs had like $171 left in cap space. They've been able to re-sign Patrick Mahomes and Chris Jones and now Travis Kelsey. How is this all happening? So I, I want to get to that, but I want, I want to go back for a second because I, too, when I saw George Kittle's five-year, $75 million contract, 
I doubled down on my take from before and thought that, I mean, that pretty much seals the deal of, of Travis Kelsey ever playing in Kansas city, because even if you think Kittle's better, just the way contracts work, if Kelsey's the next man up and he's, you know, of at least the caliber Kittle is, he's probably going to get taught, you know, he'll get a five-year $80 million deal. So I thought it was done. You know, there's just no way that's going to happen. And then, like you said, hours later, finding out he signs that extension, but going back to the money, you know, I've had conversations with, with several of my, my friends kind of about, you know, what's happening here and what you're going to see happen. One, there's definitely an expectation and pretty accepted amongst the lead that salary cap is going to go up this COVID year, uh, will be interesting to see what happens if what kind of financial impact that has on the NFL. Um, obviously, we know that with fans not being there, that'll have some, but it's more about the media money. Um, but then two, I think what you're seeing happening is Brett Veach is, is potentially taking kind of a new approach. There's there's definitely some stuff going on with, with what Brett Veach is doing that I think there's expectation of – I'm going to convert money later on and and keep pushing this down the, the road so that we can kind of keep our salary cap flexible. And that's very much into the weeds of how NFL contracts work and, and what, what numbers actually go against the salary cap and this and that. But, but going back to kind of this new strategy, I think what you're seeing is because the NFL can be so hard to predict and especially with injuries, I think these middle tier guys that are often getting fairly large contracts. I mean, I'm not, obviously we're not talking Kelsey money. We're talk, not talking Mahomes money. We're not talking Chris Jones money. I'm talking about the middle tier. Think of a guy like Anthony Hitchens, you know, a guy that's making, you know, th- a three to four year deal somewhere in the range of 30 to 50 million. These kind of middle tier guys. I think you're going to kind of see a shift a little bit away from team signing guys like that and spending money there and saying, I'm going to lock up my big time proven players that we have, that have produced for four or five years. Travis Kelsey's getting a contract. Mahomes is getting a contract. Uh, obviously with quarterbacks, that's, you know, that's a no brainer. Of course, everyone knows that, you know, Chris Jones getting a contract. Frank Clark got his money. And then what you're going to see is, spend it all up front and really just focus on on undrafted free agents guys that have been cut from other teams building through the draft not that that's a new approach i just think you're going to see more of a top end bottom end type of situation where a team is going to the you know the roster is going to be this the seven guys that they drafted that year three or four udfas are going to make it you know your whole draft class from the year before you know, and then maybe a couple sprinkled in of, of free agent guys that maybe didn't make a roster here or there. And that's going to be half your roster. And you're going to take, you're going to have eight guys that are going to be making 80% or taking up 80% of your salary cap. I think that might be a new approach that you're seeing NFL teams go with. And, and I think particularly that that's Brett Veach has shown that I think that's kind of what he's shooting for. So it's kind of a top heavy approach, right? right? I mean, you're you're locking up your your star players as opposed to a more balanced approach, right. you know, where you're giving appropriate money for each position, you make sure that you've got your starter that's making a certain amount of money at every position and then a backup and that could be, you know, a, a draft pick or an undrafted free agent or something like that. You're you're really going all in on a handful of guys and then filling in the gaps around that is basically kind of what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to that, I think to that degree, I think GMs and teams have identified and and it always, it it always starts with the quarterback, right? You're building around a quarterback. So, you know, I I think they have identified positions that we are, we want, and especially if you have them in house already, we want to spend the money here flat out. So obviously starting at quarterback, any team that has one is going to, is going to spend whatever money to keep one. If they don't, they would pay the money to bring someone in. Then it depends on your quarterback, right? So, for instance, keeping Tyreek and Kelsey with that quarterback, you know, is is probably was probably a top priority. And then from there, on the defensive side, okay, we've identified that we want to get to the pass rusher, so we're paying Chris Jones and we're paying Frank Clark, you know, and that's kind of where our money lies on the defensive side, and that's how we're going to attack it. So, I think it's very systematic, and and just like you said, and what I was, I guess, trying to get to was a top end approach. And I know that doesn't sound like you're, you're probably thinking Weston that's everybody of course pays their stars, but I more mean it in a sense of 
the disparity I think between, you know, the top 10 and the bottom 30 on your roster is going to be huge kind of is the approach that they're looking at here. See, I think the difference between you and me is that you never thought Travis Kelsey was going to sign an extension. I always thought that he was going to sign an extension. And the reason for that, it's not because of, you know, I had some kind of insight or whatever. It's it's simply because of what we've talked about multiple times on this program about the culture in Kansas City. It's about the fact that Travis Kelsey wants to play with Patrick Mahomes and, you know, he wants to get paid. Don't get me wrong. You know, he, he wants to make sure that he's getting what he deserves, but he doesn't want to actually take it to free agency to get that. I wouldn't be surprised if his agent contacted Brett Veach early on and said, look, you guys are paying Pat. You guys are paying Chris. Travis wants to be here. He wants to get paid, but he wants to be here. Let's try to find a way to make it happen. In the same way that I'm sure that Chris Jones, uh, his agent, talked to Brett Veach about the same thing. You're seeing guys want to play for a particular team and a particular coach and especially a particular quarterback. And so it's unlike anything I think we've ever seen before. Um, you know, there were always guys that wanted to go and play with Tom Brady, but I'm not sure that they were willing to be, you know, as transparent about that as I think, and I'm not obviously privy to the conversations, but it wouldn't surprise me one bit if these agents are flat out saying they want to play with Patrick Mahomes, let's get a deal done and let's get them back in Kansas city. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, I mean, there's, there might not be any bigger Pat fan than I am, but I think also who's not getting enough credit and you did mention him is Andy Reed. I think yeah. the culture Andy Reed has put in this locker room and this really for this franchise just cannot be talked about enough because there's no doubt that Travis Kelsey took the money that he did to play six more seasons with Patrick Mahomes. He could have got a bigger contract right. elsewhere. And I'll, I'll stand by the whole reason I thought that he, he was going to leave was in part because he has a big personality. He is an LA guy. He is a big fish in a small pond. Baby. That's right. He's a Las Vegas guy. He's a New York guy. He's just that kind of guy. But those places don't have Patrick Mahomes. Those places don't have Andy Reid. And ultimately that's what this comes down to. And, you know, it, it's interesting to compare what the chiefs are doing to what the Patriots did. Right. Because it could, it, it's the same thought process, right? Guys want to play for this franchise because of the culture that's being built but it's almost exactly in two different opposite ways because the Patriots for so long talked about how the, the culture was do anything come in. It's a business. We are going to, you're going to do X, Y, and Z because it's the Patriot way. And that's how we're going to win games and no other way. And guys bought in because of the success, right? They wanted to be a part of that culture because it was a winning culture. Well, the chiefs have also now, or it looks like they're starting to, to go in that direction but it's, hey, come in, be yourself. We're going to find ways to win games with with how you do it because we want you here. And that's that's how, you know, they're they're going about their business. And that's how Andy Reid, frankly, has always gone about his business. And yeah, so very uh, interesting and exciting to, to see this culture being built. I'm not sure you're going to find a more successful coach that allows his players to be themselves as much as Andy Reid, yeah. uh, that, you know, there are a lot of coaches out there that will let their, let the players be themselves, but none of them are nearly as successful as Andy Reid has been. Uh, and I think it's a testament to him and his character. The guys want to play for him. And of course, who wouldn't want to play with Patrick Mahomes? So Travis Kelsey locked up in KC for another six years. Now, while that's positive, there are some negatives for the Chiefs as well, as it was announced just within the last 24 hours that Bashad Breland has confirmed that he will serve a four-game suspension to start the NFL season. We talked about it all the way back in April that the suspension was a possibility, uh, but Breland himself has confirmed that. What does that do for the Chiefs as far as their secondary is concerned uh, for the start of the season? Is it a big loss for the Chiefs or can they get through it with no problems? No, you know, I think that is that's a significant, significant loss for sure. I mean, they were already thin in the secondary um, and you're basically what you're going to do is, you know, ask a guy like Legereus Sneed, who was drafted in the fifth round, maybe. 
um, to be, basically step in, you know, right away, uh, opposite of Traverius Ward. I mean, they've got a couple guys, you know, they've got Antonio Hamilton, they've got Rashad Fitton. Um, but I, I think the expectation is going to be Legereus Sneed needs to step up and step up right away. And that's just, it's tough to ask a rookie to do, no matter how talented they are. Cornerback is a tough position to, to really learn. I mean, you know, some of the guys that get drafted in the top 15 picks, come in and do you know seem to do fairly well i mean but they're i mean that's the best of the best of the best you know from the college rank whereas legerius sneed he's you know already kind of transitioning from a small school you know he played some safety at um uh, utep is that where he was at was it no it was uh louisiana tech wasn't it anyways coming coming from there so a lot of transition now you're asking him to step in week one and be able to battle against NFL wide receivers is going to be tough. Um, so I think it is a, I think it's a concern. I, I would look to, I would not be shocked at all if the chiefs go out and get, you know, bring in a corner. There's not really that I've seen or noticed anyone out there to be had. That's going to be a splashy signing. It would probably be a more, you know, pretty small, obviously with the money that they have available, it's not going to be anything big, but maybe a, you know, a veteran who's been around and can kind of, really just bridge that gap for either Legereus need to be ready or until, you know, Bashad Breeland comes back. So Bashad Breeland will miss the first four games of the season due to a suspension. He's not the only one on the defensive side of the ball facing a suspension. Uh, defensive coordinator Steve Spagnola announced that Mike Pinnell, defensive tackle, is going to be facing a suspension to start the season. We don't know how long. We don't even know what for, but Spagnola talked about that just within the last 24 to 48 hours that Mike Pinnell could very easily start the season um, being suspended. I mean, that's a, that's another big loss up front for the Chiefs on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, not quite as – I mean, Mike Pinnell's a dog. I absolutely love Mike Pinnell and that defensive line. I mean, just even when he, when he rotates in, you always notice him, and that's hard to do as a defensive lineman. But I'm just not as concerned about Mike Pinnell being out. Obviously, he's not in the starting rotation, and they are deep on that front four, really. I mean, they have between Kalen Saunders. I, I actually think you're going to see a big step up from Breland Speaks this year. Again, probably going to just be a rotational piece guy, but I think you're going to see a lot more of him and see it a, lot, a bigger clip. You got, obviously, Tano Passanio, and then the guy that we're all uh, curious to see what we get out of is uh, Taco Charlton, where he may run, which I, I know doesn't. Yeah. He's not a defensive tackle like Pinnell is, but really it's just a matter of, of where we're rotating guys too, because, you know, Alex Ogafor can shift down if you need to, obviously Kat, Breland speaks could probably shift in there. If you're doing some third down pass rushing, and there's just a whole lot of ways you can really not be concerned with the defensive lineman being out just with packages and those kind of things. And especially a guy who um, is at a deep position. One quick positive, though, on the defensive side of the ball, Juan Thornhill passed his physical and participated in practice in a limited capacity on Wednesday. So a good sign for for Thornhill coming back off of that season-ending injury last season. Uh, I think that, that hopefully that's going to be good and he can get back in that rotation and get some more playing time. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up, too, because that's another point that I had kind of been thinking about with Juan Thornhill. You know, if he is back and ready week one, you know, I, I think you may look at some some situations where it's going to be Juan Thornhill and Daniel Sorensen in the safety. And maybe, you know, I don't like I mentioned before, I don't know a ton about Tedrick Thompson, what we're expecting out of him. Um, but seeing both of those guys in the secondary and potentially moving the honey badger, moving Tyron Matthew you know, up into the nickel because really it's about packages more so than it is about who's starting at left corner, who's starting it. I mean, you can package stuff any way you want to. And just with the flexibility that the honey badger gives you, you can move him all over the field. And I would expect to see that early while, you know, while Bashad Breeland's out. It's definitely evolving, you know, every day that we get closer to the chief season, uh, things start to come into more and more focus about exactly who's going to be in what position as uh, we get closer and closer to the start of the season. Let's get into our Wichita whip around right now here on Keeper of the Games. We've got several different Wichita related topics uh, to get to, including the MIAA. They announced last week that they were going to be uh, canceling fall sports. That includes Newman University. Are you surprised by that decision at all? Well, I mean, I'm not other than that the MIAA director said that they were going to do it. You know, he was going to do everything under his power to, to make sure false sports were played. Um, that seemed like a bold statement at the time. And, and 
so I'm not surprised because where we're landing, even with the Power Five, you know, two two of the Power Five being out as of right now, it doesn't surprise me that the MIAA wasn't going to be able to make it work. You know, obviously Newman University doesn't have football, but some of the schools in the MIAA that do, uh, you know, obviously we're talking Fort Hay State and Emporia State, Pittsburgh State, uh, they will not be having a fall sports season uh, as the MIAA has canceled fall sports. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that means that, you know, maybe they're going to be looking towards the spring. I know a lot of people are looking at that, but uh, we'll definitely have to keep uh, our eyes on that to see what ends up happening with the MIAA moving forward. Also in the prep world, USD 259, the Wichita School District, the Greater Wichita Athletic League, they announced that high school football and not just high school football, but fall sports in general will be played uh, city league only schedules. So Wichita schools will not be going outside of the city to play at all. You know, it kind of seems like the smart move. So they're not traveling and it just seems like another way that these guys can actually be able to go out and keep playing. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I, I'm not sure uh, the, the individual uh, Mr. Means uh, from the board of directors, I think. Is that who he is? Yeah, Jay, Jay uh, Means. Yep, Jay Means. Right. US, USD 259 Athletic Director Jay Means made the comment that if they do, if the if the school district goes to remote learning, then you're probably having a conversation about canceling all fall sports. But yeah. he was quick to add that, you know, he, he thinks that even – even if they do go to if they go to remote learning, that that might be an even more important time for those kids to have a fall sport to go to, and, and you know just for the structure of their lives. And, and there's a lot going on at that age that pushing a kid in the direction of a of a football practice or a volleyball practice is probably pretty beneficial. So I do uh, appreciate that that he you know points that out and, and understands the significance of it. Yeah, without a doubt, let's hear from Jay Means talking about just that. We limit our exposure to just uh, the schools that we would compete with here in the league. As we talked, the talks kind of evolved around just playing each other. So we're not traveling all four corners of the state uh, uh, along with we don't know what other school districts are going to do. If it goes fully remote. We're probably having that conversation that, that we don't have athletics. I could make an argument that we need athletics even more if we go all remote. Yeah, I mean, you know, you definitely kind of like what you just said. I mean, it sort of seems like this is their way of trying to find a way to play. But then, of course, if, you know, they go to all remote learning and no in-class learning at all, you know, we might be having another conversation next week about no football, no fall sports whatsoever for Wichita. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it makes a lot of sense for the, for them to just stay within the city league. I mean, it's it's big enough and provides enough games, um, you know, for, for these these high schoolers. And you don't risk uh, some other school district that you don't have control over maybe being you know, irresponsible with how they're running things or, or maybe they just don't have the financial means to be as responsible as the city league. Um, you know, so I think it makes a lot of sense just to play with it. I mean, certainly you wish that they could kind of fill those games. And I, you know, with that being said, if you've, if you're taking off non I'll call them non-conference games, you know, why, why not just double up within the city league so you can get a full nine game schedule or 10 games, whatever the normal, I can't remember what the normal number is, but, um, I think this the move makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. We'll keep our eyes on that. And depending on what ends up happening with the Wichita School Board, if they end up having in-person classes or if it's all remote or a hybrid combination of both, who knows what will end up happening. But at least that's the decision right now that uh, the City League is only going to play teams in its own league and not going outside uh, for this upcoming fall sports season. The other story in our Wichita Whip Around is Pretty awesome and and a lot of great potential. It involves the Wichita Ice Center in downtown Wichita. They are one of four finalists to uh, win this competition where they could win $150,000 in improvements. Uh, It's the Craft Hockeyville USA contest. They are in the running with uh, ice centers in El Paso, Texas, East Grand Forks, Minnesota, and River Falls, Wisconsin. In addition to the money that they could win, the Wichita Ice Center could also have an opportunity to host an NHL game, which would be just absolutely crazy. So uh, I don't know. I mean, that that's really cool if there's the opportunity for the Ice Center to 
get that to win that contest, we could be seeing NHL teams coming into Wichita. Yeah, absolutely. And there's it's a live voting system. And in, in the Wich, if you go to the Wichita Thunder website, they'll certainly direct direct you to there or um, the Wichita Thunder Twitter page. I think as well has posted plenty of links, um, you know, to where you can go to vote and, and help the the Wichita Ice Center through this. But I mean, I think come on, Wichita, we, this is something we, we should certainly win. I, I don't. We, we got to beat out Minnesota and Wisconsin. They're already yeah. hot, hockey country up there. Like they don't need this extra, you know, little bit of, of notoriety. And then El Paso, Texas, it's it's too hot to be playing. To, be playing hockey down there you can't be you know i don't know how much it would cost to keep the ice cold down there that's just too much perfect location we got to win this one yeah no without a doubt and you know it's been a long time since i've been to the ice center it's probably been 10 years or so but i remember when i was there 10 years ago i thought man like this place could use some improvements and that was a decade ago Uh, i'm sure it's you know even um, you know, even more so now uh, looking for a facelift for the ice center. Some of the things that they're looking at, maybe using the improvements for if they win uh, would be a new Zamboni, a new scoreboard, and then just something to maintain that center for generations to come. Right. Uh, so like we mentioned, they are one of the four finalists. And uh, like you mentioned, Weston, uh, people can vote online. And I know the Wichita Thunder, like you said, they have shared that info. Maybe we can share that on our Twitter page as well. That way people can go and vote for uh, the ice center to get that big victory yeah absolutely we'll, we'll get that shared to the, the kog uh twitter twitter feed for sure awesome one final thing in our wichita whip around just want to mention it really quickly shout out to former wichita state shocker fred van vliet in the nba playoffs right now with the toronto raptors uh he's playing outstanding right now in fact uh he had 24 points and 10 assists uh when the raptors finished off the brooklyn nets uh that was on wednesday's game and they took a 2-0 lead in the first round playoff series uh, big game for for van vliet showing up big in the playoffs he's had a great season all the way around i know you and blake talked about him before uh but i wanted to give my shout out in there for fred van vliet playing great for toronto yeah absolutely he is one of just four players in nba history to finish with at least 30 points 10 assists and eight three-pointers in a playoff game. So uh, Fred Van Vliet is about to earn that big-time contract that he's going to get next season. Yeah, he is. And, you know, there were there was a lot of time. There were a couple of years, with the you know, first couple of years in the league where I think a lot of people thought, you know, he can play and he's good and he can, you know, eat up some minutes for these teams. But is he ever going to be a star in the NBA? And I think a lot of people didn't think he would be. Uh, he's kind of solidifying himself as that guy for Toronto. Um, and so I'm really happy for him and definitely playing well here in the playoffs. And I agree with you, earning that contract for sure. And that's going to do it for our Wichita whip around here on Keeper of the Games. Before we wrap up our finally funny, we're going all the way back to talk more about Bashad Breland and his suspension. He confirmed it on social media that he will be out the first four games of the season, but he announced it in kind of a unique way. I'm not sure if you saw this, Weston, but uh, on his Instagram page, he shared his confirmation that he was suspended and an apology about being suspended, but he did it in a song. And I'm not sure I've ever heard that before where uh, someone actually recorded a song as an apology to his teammates, coaches, and fans about being suspended. That was kind of unique. Yeah. Not even just a song, but it's, I mean, it's a full fledged music video. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I guess, you know, if music is something that's, that that's serious to him, then I guess maybe that is a, you know, maybe even a stronger apology than just, <laughs> and you know, telling everybody you're sorry or posting some comment to Twitter. Maybe this is, is his way of it being a little bit more meaningful, but uh, from what I heard, I think Bashad Breland should probably stick to playing football. I think that's probably better suited to, uh, for his future potential earnings. You're not a big fan of his flow. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, I'm not saying I could do better, but uh, I am saying there are a lot of other guys who can. Yeah. Maybe leave that to the professionals, you know, for sure. Um, I, I do have to give him credit. That was a very unique apology. I've never actually seen anybody do that before. Can you imagine if that was kind of the norm, you know, like anytime anybody in life screws up, they have to go record a music video to apologize for it. They can't just be like, Hey, I'm sorry. I screwed up. I'm sorry. I, I got suspended. I got to go do a music video to apologize. Yeah, that's right. There'd probably be a lot less screwing up because I, if you told me I had to apologize by way of music video, I wouldn't want to face that uh, shame and embarrassment and certainly would do a whole lot better to not just screw up in the first place. 
Yeah, he's got my forgiveness because, you know, recording a song and then recording a music video, that's a lot of work and probably cost him a good amount of money. It would have been a whole lot easier for him to just, you know, post on Twitter. Like you said, hey, I'm sorry about that. He put a lot of work into his apology. So uh, definitely forgive him for that. But I do agree with you. Um, I think he's better suited out on the field than he is uh, recording music videos for sure. That's our finally funny here on Keeper of the Games. And that's going to wrap things up for this episode of the show, our episode. Episode number 30, Weston, is officially in the books. That's incredible. It really is. Made it all the way to 30 episodes. Don't forget to hit subscribe that way. Anytime we have a brand new episode, you'll get a notification. You can find us again on all major podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, all the major ones. You can find us there. You can hit subscribe. That way you'll get a notification anytime we have a new episode right there for you. Also, of course, don't forget to visit our website, cogpod.weebly.com. Watch full episodes there or on YouTube and Facebook by searching for Keeper of the Games. And of course, you can follow us uh, on Twitter and Instagram at cogpod at K-O-G pod. And of course, Weston, uh, what is your Twitter handle? Wmills94. You can follow me at tweets from Tommy. We'll be back with another episode of Keeper of the Games next week. And so you won't want to miss that. For Weston Mills, I'm Tommy Castor. You've been checking out Keeper of the Games. Take care, guys. You've been listening to Keeper of the Games with Tommy Castor and Weston Mills. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and listen on all major podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Find the podcast and videos on Facebook and YouTube at Keeper of the Games and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CogPod. That's K-O-G-Pod. 